Well, good morning. I hope you're having a wonderful Lord's Day today as we have come together to worship. And now we come to the time of the message from God's Holy Word. As we begin today, I'm amazed that we're already in our fourth message from 1 Thessalonians. What a journey it's been. What a joy it's been, at least to me. I hope it's been fruitful to you as well. It's an amazing letter, isn't it? It's Paul's earliest canonical letter, his earliest uh, inspired letter collected in the scriptures, isn't it? Written in AD 50 uh, in Corinth, written to this church in Thessalonica, a church that is remarkable, a newborn congregation in the faith, a, a congregation for which Paul is greatly concerned. A letter, by the way, written within 20 years of Christ's life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension, an amazing window, as it were, into the earliest days of ministry in the church. And it's a very pastoral letter we see here, a theological letter, yes, but also a pastoral letter. So what have we looked at over the past few weeks? Well, we've looked at uh, the historical background as seen in Acts of the Apostles. We've looked at the missional team with Paul and Silas and Timothy. We've looked at the city of Thessalonica, the larger context of the Macedonian mission and ministry. Last Sunday, we moved into something different, didn't we? We are in the same letter, of course, but we began to talk about Paul's motives for writing this letter, the purpose of the letter, knowing that Paul had been forced out of the city. And we spoke about that, didn't we? That Paul had had initial success, followed by great opposition, a pattern that recurred throughout the Macedonian phase of the second mission journey. So what exactly happened here? Well, we know Paul was forced out by uh, some Jewish leaders that became jealous of Paul's success in the synagogue, so he was forced out. Paul was only there, we spoke about this last Sunday, maybe three weeks, at the most maybe five weeks. He had not felt he had enough time with the new believers there to really train them and ground them in the faith. If elders were appointed, perhaps he didn't feel they were uh, really seasoned enough or had been taught enough to stand in the day of testing, the day of persecution. So Paul is concerned. He goes to Berea. He has, again, initial success there. And then the Jewish leaders from Thessalonica come and stir up trouble in Berea, and Paul leaves again. As Paul is fleeing to Athens, he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica. Maybe Paul cannot go, but he can send someone to check on the church here in this great city. You can imagine Paul's concern as he is waiting what must seem like an eternity in those days to get a report back from Timothy. So imagine his elation when Timothy returns and Timothy has with him a report and what a report it turned out to be. Far from merely surviving, the Thessalonian church was flourishing in the faith. They were growing in numbers and in maturity. They were evangelizing the city, the region, and even beyond their region, they were evangelizing into Achaia. And while they had started out as those following the example of Paul, by the time Paul gets the report from Timothy, they are maturing in the faith to such a degree that they are set, setting the example that others are following. Realizing that all those things were going well doesn't mean this church was problem-free. As we saw last week, there were a number of difficulties, not only persecution, not only lacking advanced training in theology and teaching of doctrine, there was also some other issues, wasn't there? One major issue was that there seemed to be an attack against Paul and Silas and Timothy claiming that they were religious grifters. We looked at this in depth last Sunday as we had our sermon on Paul's 
apologia or Paul's apology, Paul's defense of his ministry and motives. Now, it was very common in the days of Paul to find traveling con men. They would travel from town to town. They would try to get a, a little bit of a religious following, and they would try to earn their keep along the way. We see people like this even today. But any charge that Paul was a charlatan is utter nonsense. He didn't come with flattering words. He didn't come looking for profit. Instead, after suffering for the message preached in Philippi, he boldly proclaimed the exact same message in Thessalonica. And he didn't stand on apostolic privilege. Paul made that point. That would have been an easy route to gain. And what could prove Paul's motives truer than the fact that he worked during the day to support himself that he might not be a burden to the Thessalonian church? Brothers and sisters, what charlatan ever behaved like that? So as we approach today's text, I want you to keep all that in mind. All of that is the background. All of that is what's happening. All of that is the context we need to keep in our minds to understand as we move forward. And so let's get right into the word of God. Hear now the word of the Lord. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing. Because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, You welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us. And they do not please God. And are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Brothers and sisters, this morning as we think about this text, there are three primary points that need to be considered. First of all, a return to thanksgiving. A return to thanksgiving. We'll see this in Paul's approach to writing here. Second of all, a heritage of faithfulness. A heritage of faithfulness. And this is a heritage of faithfulness that Paul desires that the Thessalonians would see themselves as a part of. And thirdly and finally, the judgment of God. We want to see that Paul warns that the judgment of God is going to fall upon the enemies of God. And in fact, Paul says here, it already is. I pray that we will both see and understand these points as we come to consider God's holy and inerrant word. So beginning with the idea of a return to thanksgiving... As we return to the second chapter of this letter, we immediately see another offering of thanksgiving here in the 13th verse. As I mentioned in our very first sermon, as we began uh, 1 Thessalonians, Peter O'Brien wrote an exhaustive book surveying Paul's introductory thanksgivings. And he concluded that in 1 Thessalonians, Paul is offering a single thanksgiving that spans from the first chapter to into the third chapter. Now, This approach would argue that we looked at last Sunday, uh, chapter 2, 1 through 12, is a digression, a temporary digression from that thanksgiving. But regardless of whether or not we accept O'Brien's proposal, and many do not, but regardless, you'd have to admit this must be an incredible letter of thanksgiving. Well, it goes without saying that thanksgiving should always be a part of a faithful Christian life. Paul knew that. Paul calls for us to be a people of thanksgiving. As we come to a knowledge of what God has done by His grace in our lives, how could we not have a deep gratitude? 
And if we have gratitude, how can we not see that gratitude overflow into thanksgiving to God? How could it do anything but overflow into thanksgiving? In fact, we're later told in this exact same letter that we are to give thanks in everything for such an attitude is part of what makes up the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Christians must be a people of thanksgiving. New Testament scholar G.K. Bill wrote, Some people may think of themselves as Christians, but if they never have a desire to thank and to please God, then it may be because they do not really know Him. Now, brothers and sisters, that's a profound and important quote. For many who have grown up in our churches have confused external profession with salvation. Christians are a people who both know and love God, a people who live thankfully in response to His amazing grace. And as we grow in our knowledge of God and His goodness, we become increasingly thankful over time. At the very least, we can rightfully argue that a life of bitterness, devoid of thanksgiving, is not evidence of a life in Christ. The Christian life should overflow with gratitude and thanksgiving. And while, of course, we should be generally thankful in our lives, the Apostle Paul's thanksgiving in this text is specifically offered. First, we see that the apostle is thankful for the received word. Now, Paul will go beyond this basic statement, but we shouldn't just skip over it. As the word of God is proclaimed, we should be thankful for the word of God. And as it's proclaimed, there should always be a prayer accompanying it that it will be received as it is, in fact, the truth. Paul demonstrates his joy that the Thessalonians were accepting of the message of the gospel of God. In fact, Paul uses a word here for receive, paralambano, which is formed of two words, meaning from and to take. The idea is to accept it or to take it alongside. My friends, we need to recognize that what Paul is saying is that when they heard the word of God, they took it alongside them. They received it. Paul means that they received it, not just outwardly, but they accepted the offer deliberately and readily. Now, this is not the picture of a begrudging reception of the word. Neither does it picture a shallow reception. Instead, the message of salvation was welcomed, gladly accepted, and received like a true offer of reconciliation with God. Since it was accepted, it might lead us to ask why it was accepted. The answer to that question forms the second reason for Paul's thanksgiving. Paul is thankful for the recognized word. The Thessalonians didn't just receive the word, they recognized that it was not the word of man, but the word of the living God. My friends, this is no small deal, is it? We need to recognize that the word of God is being proclaimed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Thessalonians heard it and received it, and it might not have been difficult for them to recognize this, because listen, Paul tells us already that when the word of God was preached, it wasn't with mere words. Now, as we said before, Paul doesn't mean that they didn't preach through words, but what he means is, The power didn't rest in our words. The power was made evident by the power of the Word of God and the power of the Spirit of God moving amongst us. You all recognize that this was not the great and glorious speech of men, but this was inspired speech about the great and glorious God. Now, my friends, we have spoken before about the wisdom of man in the Greco-Roman world. We've seen Many examples over the years of this. As we journeyed through 1 Corinthians, we dealt with this very subject. Corinth was a city that loved earthly wisdom. Now, it was an athletic city. 
You all may remember they had the Isthmus Games. This was only second to the Olympic Games. And yet their ultimate reverence was for orators. It was literally a city on fire for a good debate, a good argument. But Paul entered Corinth preaching only Christ and him crucified. Why? For he did not want the Corinthians to attribute the power that they encountered as being from the messenger. Paul wanted to make sure they recognized that the power came from the message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and certainly that it would be accompanied by the power of God in the person and work of the Holy Spirit. While the ancient world was full of worldly wisdom, the Thessalonian believers noticed that there was something different about the message of salvation found in Christ Jesus. When the message was preached, they heard it not as the word and wisdom of man, but as the word of God. And realizing this, they received it with gladness. Paul continues his offering of praise as he expresses thanksgiving for the effective word. It's a blessing to realize that we do not embrace and receive an ineffective word. God's holy word effectively works in all who believe. And by saying that it works effectively in all who believe, we do not mean to say that it fails to take effect in those who do not believe. It's not what God's word declares. God declares, for as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Isaiah 55. 10 and 11. Notice that our God says that his word never returns without accomplishing exactly what he set it out to accomplish. Even when it is not welcomed, even when it is not received. We get another picture of this in 2 Corinthians wherein Paul states that preaching the same gospel carries the aroma of Christ to all men. And even though it's the same message and it's about the same Christ, to some it carries the aroma of life leading to life, for others, the aroma of death leading to death. The point is that the word is always effective, whether in breaking hearts or in hardening them. Yet in the case of the Thessalonians, they have found in the word of God the aroma of life in the message of Christ, which has led them into life in Christ. The power of the word to work effectively in this way is the joy of Paul's ministry of reconciliation as he preaches the message that reconciles fallen sinners to a holy and righteous God through Jesus Christ. This gospel message of hope is powerful. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The awesome word of God is an effective and powerful word, and that power was seen in the justification of the Thessalonian church when they heard the word, received the word, believed the word, and were transformed by faith in that word. Well, brothers and sisters, if we have seen a return to thanksgiving as our first point. We want to move to our second point, a heritage of faithfulness. Paul wants the Thessalonian church to recognize that it is being called into a heritage of faithfulness. The veracity of the Thessalonian faith is testified to in the first chapter of this letter. 
And that leads Paul to continue his offering of thanksgiving. Over the past several weeks, we've stated that perseverance is the greatest evidence of faith. Here is a church that has persevered through suffering. And Paul is thankful that they have been tested and been shown to be tried and true in their faith. And because of that faith, they enter a heritage of faith that encompasses all who truly believe in Christ Jesus. Paul points this when he states that the Thessalonian believers became imitators. Now, one of the points that Paul made in chapter 1 is that these believers had become imitators of Paul as he was imitating Christ. Here, however, Paul is making a different point. In this text, he says that the Thessalonian believers have become imitators of the churches in Judea. Now, what does he mean by that? They became imitators of the churches in Judea because, like them, they became sufferers for their faith. It cost them something to walk this pathway of faithfulness. It cost them something to live before the face of God, just as it had cost the early Christians in Judea when they had walked by faith. The Jerusalem saints, like Stephen, had endured great persecution and even death for the truth of Christ. The Thessalonians, likewise, are standing firm in the faith, and by doing so, they are imitators of the faith modeled by those earliest believers. In that way, the Thessalonian believers became links. Now, this point is not drawn from the literal text, but uh, the implication is there through the entirety of these verses. These believers have become more than mere imitators. They have become fellow links in the chain of the history of what God is accomplishing in his providence and sovereignty. For the people of God have always been persecuted, and often this persecution has been at the hands of their own people and leaders. One can imagine the question that the early church repeatedly faced. If Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament message, why are the Jewish leaders opposing it so strongly? Imagine Paul's response considering what he's arguing here. Believers are a part of a larger story of the faithfulness of the people of God in the face of persecution. One should not be surprised at the opposition of the Jewish leaders, for they have always opposed the prophets of God. Name a single prophet of God who was lovingly accepted. Generally, the messengers of God were persecuted and killed. Christ was also rejected. Christ was also persecuted. Christ was also killed. It is for this reason that it should shock no one that the church has been rejected and despised by the Jewish leaders. The opposition of Israel then should be seen in a new way. It does not signal that the Christian movement is wrong, but that it is a part of what God has always been doing over time. The Thessalonians are part of a larger story of those who are working within the plan of God, working within the will of God. They stand in continuity with the faithful who came before them. And therefore, the Thessalonians should rejoice that they have faithfully received the word and have been formed into an indelible link in the faithful heritage of the people of God. Having seen a return of thanksgiving and having seen a heritage of faithfulness we come now to the judgment of God of course what we just said about Israel and its place at least its leadership's place in opposing the work of God over time it brings into focus a question about those who stand against the work of God if the Thessalonians have come to know the blessings of God despite persecution their persecutors shall surely come to know the curse of being at enmity with God. Brothers and sisters, this is no small point to be made. The scriptures declare that man is naturally at enmity with God. 
Thus he bears the judgment that any rebel would bear when standing before a holy and righteous king and judge. Paul makes clear that the same Jewish leaders who oppose the church are also in opposition to God. To make this case, Paul presents a legal indictment against the Jewish oppressors. Paul is like a prosecutor who reads the indictment in a court of law. He lists six charges. First, they are guilty of killing Jesus. While Jesus was put to death under Roman authority, the Bible clearly assigns a level of responsibility to Israel. It was Israel that sought to have Christ killed. It was Israel that desired that Rome would crucify him. It was the leaders that stirred up the crowd to call for Christ's crucifixion. Now Peter made this clear in his Pentecost sermon when he preached that they, meaning the the Jewish crowd he's speaking to, had taken Jesus, quote, by lawless hands, had crucified him and put him to death. And by the way, the apostles make this charge again in Acts chapter 4. Paul does not start with a light charge, does he? But with the greatest act of sin and rebellion ever committed, the putting to death of the Son of God. Now, second, Paul indicts them for killing God's prophets. We specifically addressed this earlier, so there's no need to address it again. But nonetheless, it's a serious charge. Third, Paul charges them with driving Paul and the Christian missionaries out of Jerusalem and nearly every other city they have visited. Now, this is a charge of being in opposition to the will and plan of God and opposing the work of the gospel. No light charge. The fourth charge is that the unfaithful Jews displease God. Well, that shouldn't shock us. How can anyone please God who is at war against his will? Such as these are under his wrath, not his pleasure. The author of Hebrews tells us that outside of faith, it is impossible to please God. Hebrews eleven six. So again, it is obvious that those who are in opposition to the gospel are not pleasing them because they do not live by faith. Paul's fifth charge is that these unfaithful Jews are hostile against all men. The word that Paul uses here is enantios, and this word conveys the idea of being contrary or adverse or hostile. I think we can think of this charge in two ways, two layers. First of all is that we can understand Paul referencing the turmoil that was going on throughout the entirety of the Roman Empire. If you go back to our first sermon in this series, we mentioned that the general view within the empire was that Jews were a stubborn and difficult people. It was also the view that Jews looked down upon other people and held them in disdain. Now, this is partially the reason that Emperor Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome a year before this letter was written. To say that the Jews were against all men would seem accurate to Paul. Certainly, they opposed the Gentiles. They even went so far as to oppose any Jews who were considered pro-Gentile. So again, to say they are against the nations or the the Gentile world uh, would seem to have been a fair charge in the days of Paul. The second way of understanding this term is related to our sixth charge. It was the Jews' a desire to inhibit the work of the gospel amongst the nations. Now, obviously, this is true of the non-Christian Jews who opposed the gospel work anyway, but particularly amongst the uh, Gentiles. But there were even many Jewish believers who seemed to oppose the work of the gospel amongst the Gentiles if the Gentiles did not first become Jews. And so we see this. We see this hostility toward the nations. Unfaithful Israel could be said to be against and hostile to all men because they did not want salvation offered to the nations. 
One of the recurrent themes of biblical theology is Israel's rejection of God's call to bless the nations. Now certainly the New Testament picture is clear. There is great opposition to Gentiles entering the church as Gentiles. And even after Peter says that it's clearly God's revealed will to do so, opposition amongst the Jewish believers persists. We see the judgment of God even clearer as we recognize that the presented charges demand a clear verdict. The opponents of God are without excuse. They stand in their guilt before a law that condemns them. And this is a key point that Paul makes in his letter to the Roman church. Romans 3.19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. The law stops every mouth because it demonstrates that man is unrighteous before God. These unfaithful Jews have violated the law in their rebellion against the person, work, and will of Christ, and thus they are without excuse, which means that they surely await a just wrath. Wrath is God's response to wickedness. He answers in his righteous wrath on sin. Here Paul says that the rebellion of the Jewish opponents is working always to fill up the full measure of their sin. Now, my friends, the idea of filling up or storing up wrath until a full measure is achieved is not new. In Genesis 15, Abraham has promised the land of Canaan, but his descendants will not possess it until when? The fourth generation. Now, why must that be? Because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Genesis 15, 16. In other words, they have not yet stockpiled the full measure of their guilt, their sin. And until that occurs, God is forbearing his judgment in his mercy. Jesus presented a similar warning to his opponents, didn't he? Matthew chapter 23, verses 31 and 32. Jesus warned the scribes and Pharisees, Therefore you are witnesses against yourself that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Clearly this is a warning presented to the enemies of Christ in his own lifetime. The leaders of the people are perpetuating the rebellion of their fathers against God and his anointed messengers. They are warned that they are nearing a point of filling that guilt up, thus judgment will fall. What is warned in Matthew's gospel has come to pass in the days of Paul. The apostle does not say that wrath is coming, but that it has come. Judgment has come on unfaithful Israel. What does Paul mean by this? Well, simply put, that the warning of filling up guilt has now come along with judgment. Now, Paul may have interpreted the events of his day. There was a, a three-year famine in this time period in Jerusalem that Paul even raised aid to support the churches. In 48, there was a massive uprising in Jerusalem, which was put down in a slaughter by Rome. Just six months before this letter is even written, Claudius, the emperor, has expelled Jews from Rome, birthing pains of a coming judgment. What did Paul know about the uh, coming judgment that will fall on Jerusalem very shortly? We can only guess. But we do know that Jesus warned the apostles that such a judgment was coming. Maybe he told Paul as well. If nothing else, Paul certainly knew there was another type of judgment already upon his kinsmen. He speaks of it in Romans chapter 11. Paul mentions that most of Israel is hardened against the gospel of Christ. Again, this would be in line with the words of Christ, who applied the judgment warning of Isaiah 29 to his own generation. 
Because Israel had opposed the gospel, just as they had consistently opposed God's will, their hearts had been hardened. Now I need to make one final point on this section of the text. Many scholars have had great difficulty with this passage. It's amazing when when you read it, but it's true. Even men that are uh, generally very orthodox have some problems with this passage. F.F. Bruce is among them. Bruce wrote this of, of this passage. Paul certainly did not believe in A.D. 57 that irrevocable retribution had overtaken the Jewish people. What had come on them, he said, was a partial and temporary hardening, which was but the prelude in a mysterious purpose of God to the ultimate salvation of all Israel. Unless he changed his mind radically on the subject in the interval of seven years between the writing of 1 Thessalonians and of Romans, it is difficult to make him responsible for the viewpoint expressed here. Now, that's a common viewpoint of scholars, isn't it? To be skeptical of the authenticity or accuracy of the Word of God. It was shocking to me to see Bruce say that, F.F. Bruce say that. Paul wrote this text. It doesn't even seem that hard to reconcile, to be honest with you. I'm not quite sure why people of Bruce's caliber have trouble with this. I want to offer a harmonizing note here. Bruce notes the optimism of the Apostle Paul towards Israel's ultimate future in Romans chapter 11. And he finds it, in fact, because it's so hopeful, he finds it hard to harmonize with this text. But most scholars have difficulty with Romans chapter 11 because they say Paul's statement of this future hope of Israel seems to be so divergent from what he said from chapters 9 until that point, which all seem to be about the judgment of God. And in fact, the statements of Romans 9 and 10 seem to line up very much with what Paul writes here in 1 Thessalonians. We want to think about the overview of it. Paul has been talking about uh, this amazing heights of glory in Romans chapter 8, and then suddenly transitions to Romans 9, 1, where he says he has a, a great sorrow and continual grief of heart. Why? Because the judgment of God has fallen upon his kinsmen according to the flesh, which is to say Israel. Now, lest we underplay what Paul is saying, it's clear that he means judgment and wrath because he says that he would almost take their anathema upon himself if it were possible. Now, my friends, it does demonstrate Paul's love for his countrymen, but also demonstrates that Paul had a recognition that the wrath of God has settled upon them. Of course, this is not true of every single Jew. Paul is an example. Paul could point to himself as well as many of the early church leaders as evidence that God is saving Jews as well. In fact, Paul does make this point. In Romans chapter 11, Paul uses language that is significant in terms of biblical theology and history. After referencing back to the story of Elijah and the 7,000 elect of God, Paul says, even so then, at the present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Election not only speaks of the preserving power of God upon a remnant of his people, but it also speaks to a future purpose for which they are being preserved. They should also recognize that in Romans, Paul asserts God's justice in his wrath upon Israel. They were given great blessings, yet they missed the intention and purpose of that blessing, which was Christ. For Christ is the telos of the law, the aim or purpose of it. It all pointed to him. The error was not innocent. Paul makes this clear in Romans. They refused to submit to the righteousness of God, instead preferring to establish their own righteousness. Now, we could summarize the judgment message of Romans against Israel with the words of Paul in the 28th verse of chapter 11. There Paul calls Israel the enemy of the gospel for your sake. 
It shouldn't surprise us then that the enemies of the gospel would fall under divine judgment. That if you want to reconcile these two messages, these two letters, the only discrepancy is that Paul adds the hopeful note in Romans 11. It's missing here in 1 Thessalonians. This doesn't mean that Paul changed his mind or that someone else wrote this letter, some ridiculous statement like that. It simply means that it was not in Paul's or the Holy Spirit's purpose to speak of the future salvation of Israel in this letter. The question before Paul references the rejection of Christ by Israel and what that says about the orthodoxy of the gospel message. Paul's answer is that Israel has consistently opposed the will and work of God and for this reason judgment is coming upon Israel. But not all of Israel. Paul, the apostles, and many others are a remnant preserving God's work amongst the Jewish people for a future day. In Romans, Paul is dealing with the larger question of salvation history and how it relates to the congregation in Rome, a congregation of Jews and Gentiles. And Paul's purpose there was to show that God is bringing together a people made up of both Jews and Gentiles. There are two different emphases between these letters, but there is no contradiction between them. In closing, I want to return where we started this morning. Paul began this text with an offer of thanksgiving for a people who had received the word of God. Considering this last section on judgment, the judgment that falls on all those outside the gospel, the blessings of being in the family of Christ are clearly immeasurable. If you've received the word of God, then like the Thessalonians, you have reason to be most thankful. We ought to be a people who also welcome the gospel of God, recognizing it as it truly is, the word of God, not the word of man, but the word of almighty God. Have you done so? Have you received the word? Have you trusted in the word? Placed your faith in the one the word points to, Jesus Christ. And if you have not, what would keep you from doing so? Recognizing that the wrath of God will fall upon all who do not trust in Christ. So, dear people, if you are out there today and you have not trusted in Christ, have not heard his gospel, received his gospel and trusted in it, what other decision even matters? I would compel you today to hear the call of Christ. If you are amongst his people, then brothers and sisters, would you recognize that you have the greatest reason for joy and thanksgiving imaginable. You have been adopted into the family of God, and you have been spared from the wrath to come by God's amazing grace. Truly, that is worth thanksgiving and praise. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. In reading this letter of thanksgiving, we offer thanksgiving for the life we have in Christ. Father, I pray that if there was one listening today who recognized that they were trusting in something else, we pray today that the foundations of all earthly things they trust in would shake, that they might find the greater treasure of Christ. And Father, for those of us who are yours, I pray we would hear this message that we ought to be a people most thankful because we have life eternal in Christ Jesus by your grace. For that, we offer our thanksgiving. In Christ's name and for his everlasting glory, amen.